one of the things that he would tell us often is that it's chestnut checkers, chestnut checkers. Uh, and so again, th the long game, right? That you have to make moves um, that will not just impact your today, but the lives of folks down the road. Welcome to Deviate with Rolf Potts, where I talk with experts, public figures, and interesting people about fascinating topics that meander off topic. Today, I'm excited to share an episode I've been working on for a long time, and I think it's a special one. You know, a lot of podcasts are about encouraging and celebrating success, and that's great, but often that notion of success focuses on individual outcomes and fast turnarounds, while the story I'm sharing today stretches across the better part of a century and involves a man whose success found its strongest expression in the people that came after him. It's a story about long-horizon heroism, and it's the kind of story we don't celebrate enough in America with our individualist notions of what success is. In fact, it's a story I might never have known about had I not been friends with a girl named Kay Monk back in high school. I knew Kay from classes like AP Chemistry and Honors English, and I liked being around her because she didn't seem like the other teenagers I knew at the time. What I liked about her was a quiet confidence that other kids didn't seem to have. I guess you'd call it self-possession, a kind of intuitive conviction that life was not something to be squandered. Kay ended up being the academic star of my high school class. She now works as a university vice president. But ask her about her success in life, and she'll invariably bring up her grandfather, a man named John Monk, who served in the U.S. Army through three wars. Kay and I were teenagers at a time when America was going through a reckoning with how the country treated veterans coming home from the Vietnam War, a reckoning you can hear in 1980s movies like Rambo. And I come back to the world, and I see all those maggots at the airport, Protesting me, spitting, calling me baby killer and all kinds of vile crap. Now, during that era, there was a sense that this hostility was something new, that in previous eras of American history, the country respected soldiers in uniform. But that wasn't always the case, even during World War II, when Kay's grandfather, John Monk, joined the U.S. Army. See, John was a young black man, and even in uniform near his base in Virginia in 1942, he wasn't allowed on a public bus if white people decided they wanted his seat. There's actually an entire shameful history of prejudice and even violence against African-American war veterans that long predates attitudes about the Vietnam War. I won't go too deep into those stories in this episode, but I've added show notes links that document those anti-war veteran incidents, most of which happened in the American South. In the case of John Monk, it was a single day in 1942 when as a black soldier in Virginia, he couldn't find a public bus that would pick him up that became kind of a turning point in his life. His response to that situation was resolute yet subtle, and it ended up lasting decades, a series of acts that might be hard to fathom at a time when our success stories skewed towards personal gratification rather than lifelong sacrifice for generations to come. I interviewed John Monk in the spring of 2018. He was 102 years old at the time, and he passed away a few months later. It was a remarkable conversation, but because of John's age and his deep Southern accent, it could at times be hard to understand. So late last year, I met up with my old friend Kay, and our conversation about John Monk's life forms the backbone of this episode. You'll hear a lot of John's voice mixed into this conversation, especially early on, but in a way, Kay is the perfect person to frame this discussion, not just because she was so close to her grandfather, but also because she's able to bear witness to the very direct way that his decisions in life made her who she is, from setting a moral example when she was young to making sure she had a ride to an interview for the most generous university scholarship in Kansas back when she was a teenager, a scholarship she ended up winning. 
Our conversation starts with a recollection of how Kay and I know each other and how I first learned about her grandfather. Let's listen in. So, Kay, you know, I've known you since high school. Yeah, we, we long were, time. Long, it is a long time. It was 30 years ago. Um, and we were uh, lab partners in chemistry, in AP chemistry, yeah. senior year. Janice Crowley. Janice Crowley, great teacher. Um, and so a, a few years ago, I was, I forget the circumstances under which I saw it, but the Eagle did a story on this guy named John Monk, who was turning 100 years old. Yeah. And he was this remarkable war hero. But his war hero story was not really about jumping into trenches and blowing things up, but he was about this guy who went into the army in 1942. He was a young man. He'd never been outside of uh, Louisiana before. Right. He was waiting at a bus station and they wouldn't let him on the bus. They wouldn't let him on the bus. And why do you think it was they didn't let him on the bus? Well, they wouldn't let him on the bus because there were other folks that needed to get out that took priority. Remember in 1942, we still lived in heavily segregated communities. Uh, My grandfather, of course, was an African-American man going off to war. Um, He was big and he was black and he would say he was ugly. Um, And when you put those three things together, that meant you were the last to to be able to get a ride. And so he waited quite a bit long time. Yeah, and and according to the story, the weather was bad um, and that literally he was in uniform. Again, we think of World War II as as this patriotic war, but here's a man, a big strong man in uniform who literally couldn't get on the bus because white people had priority in the state of Virginia in 1942. Absolutely, the greatest generation yeah. uh, going yeah. off to serve his country, as so many did at that time, um, stood in the rain for hours, um, waiting to get on a bus so that he could go and report for duty. Yeah, and we'll get to this more in a second because we have some recording of the man himself. But according to that story, he decided he could he could be bitter and hateful about that or he could he could just sort of take his frustration and, and be the best soldier and the best citizen he could be. Yeah, you know, I, I had the fortune of not knowing him for 102 years, but I certainly knew him well for 40, over 48 years. Um, and probably one of the most considerate uh, and kind, um, egalitarian type of people that I've ever met in my life, um, particularly uh, apropos given some of the experiences that he had. And he would tell us, even as children, that you you get to make a choice on what this means for you and how you go about living the rest of your life. And um, he really valued um, spending his time and energies on those things that were positive and not not buying into hate or um, spending a lot of energy in that regard. This is something I want to come back to because we live in this social media age where we express our frustration and rage immediately and then we're our next level of frustration is not having results at that frustration or rage. Well, this guy played the long game. Absolutely. He was on a he was at a bus station in 1942 and he decided I'm going to I'm going to win this yeah. basically. I'm yeah. going to reinvest and not to give away the uh, the secret here, but you're sort of part of his success story. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, and and so he ended up being in the military for another couple decades. Uh, And we'll get into that in a second because we have the voice himself. And one thing I just mentioned, and I'll mention it again now, is that we talked to him in May of 2018. Mm -hmm. He was a healthy, sharp guy, but 78 days later, he passed away, which is not unusual for a guy who's 102 years old. 102. Right. Um, But again, because he is, um, because he had this Louisiana drawl because he was 102 and because it was sort of a warm day with the air conditioner on, 
Uh, the sound isn't perfect, so we're going to sort of help frame his story as we remember who he was and sort of celebrate who he was. Absolutely. I'm excited to be here to help with that. Awesome. Now, one aside, I don't want to have the whole podcast be about this, but you and I grew up in the 80s, you know. Yeah. We're North High class of 89, and there is sort of this idea that um, Vietnam vets weren't getting their fair shake. And I think that's true. There, there's sort of a classism that happened in the Vietnam War, that working class guys fought, college guys, guys college age guys sort of got out of that war. Yeah. And because it was not a popular war, there were some negative attitudes were, were levied toward Vietnam soldiers. And so it was common knowledge. I mean, even, you know, Presidents Obama, you know, he's talked about this, about how Vietnam War vets didn't get the greatest shake in the world. What I didn't know until I started researching history a little bit is that the war veterans who had it worse in American history, far worse than the negative attitudes towards Vietnam soldiers that we sort of grew up with, were African-American soldiers yeah. in the 20th century. Um, and there's actually, uh, there's some research online, the Equal Justice Initiative, and they just went back and they studied old newspapers. Mm -hmm. um, they documented things that were recorded in real time in the 19-teens and the 1940s, and there were actually 13 lynchings of World War I African-American vets for very, wow. very minor things, like um, basically standing up for their rights in, in uniform. Um, but because your grandfather was a World War II veteran, I would like to point out that there were also incidences that we didn't grow up knowing about, but were very... Um, disturbing that basically yeah. um war veterans who just happened to be african-american there was a man named timothy hood down in the south who was shot by a trolley driver i think that was in georgia oh wow because he took down a sign that said that black people had had to sit in the back yeah um and it's funny how and i don't want to dwell on this too much but it you know basically people who'd never seen combat in their lives took issue with a combat veteran, veteran. soldier because he thought that this was unjust. Yeah. Right. You know, one of the things that, that I think my grandfather, again, didn't talk about a whole lot, although was very proud of his military service and all of his children and grandchildren knew that he'd served mm -hmm. and served proudly. Um, but it was not without difficulty for him. And there would be days where it, a conversation would come up and he would remember a story that would bring him to tears mm. um, just based on how he was treated. Sometimes even, like, to your point, even in uniform um, and how you could travel abroad. This you know, poor young kid out of Haynesville, Louisiana, uh, who had traveled abroad in order to serve his country and treated better on foreign soil than he would be when he returned, even in uniform. Yeah, there's some famous stories about this. And again, I don't want to go too far off topic, but like the Harlem Hellfighters distinguished themselves in combat in World War I, not in an American unit because the American unit wouldn't, wouldn't let them happen. fight. Yeah. It was a French unit who put these African-American soldiers um, on the front and they performed heroically. And um, someday I hope there's a movie about that. But um, your grandfather was a part of this. You know, yeah. that in, in some ways we can, we look at the military and we see it as this integrated place. But when your grandfather joined the military, black soldiers couldn't perform in combat. Right. And his, we'll get to this in a second, but his first job, his first real job, I think was um, training soldiers with these anti-aircraft balloons. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And so we'll, we'll get to that in a second. Let's, let's sort of tell his life story though. You mentioned that he's from Haynesville, Louisiana. Haynesville, Louisiana. And as we talk, uh, hopefully we can blend his voice in a little bit. 
but he was, if I'm not mistaken, born to a sharecropper family. Yes. Uh, we was farmers. My, my dad was a farmer. My poor hand was a farmer. Everybody was a farmer. If you the black, he's a farmer, you know. Cotton. Cotton was the main crop. You could work out $250 a bale. So we would make uh, 16 something, maybe 20 bales a year. A sharecropper family in Monroe, um, it was one of, I think we counted 11 children. Uh, he's smack dab kind of in the middle of those, um, toward the older side when it comes to the brothers. And um, had, a, had a really strong family unit, but left his family early. Um, as did most kids at, at that particular time. He was, uh, his father was a sharecropper, but he, my grandfather worked on other people's farms. Hmm. Um, as a kid, or what we would today call a kid, 13 and 14 years of age, where during the week he lived in a barn uh, that was owned by someone else and worked on their farm, and would come home on weekends, and then do chores and spend time with the family, and then go back to his job on Monday morning. I remember when we talked to him, he talked a little bit about the financial arrangement that sharecropping entailed. He had a sneaky way of doing it. You see, he had his own grocery store. He'd go sell the, the cotton. He'd tell us, well, you all won't come out. He'd, get, he'd probably give us a half of what we made. But we never got it. It just sort of gobsmacked me that basically the guy who owned the farm also owned the, sh the store in town. Yes. And so they would sort of farm against credit on groceries at the, at, at, at the town store that was owned by the guy who, who worked the farm. So how did that work? Did he tell you about that? Yeah. You know, we didn't talk about that a whole lot, but the notion that you were always indebted um, because you didn't get money, right? They didn't actually pay you you could go in and, and trade your service for that of groceries for the week, um, which was always kind of a moving target. So this week's amount of work could get you this much oats and this much cornmeal, and then next week it might take an extra day to get the same amount of oats and cornmeal. So um, he did talk about the, the equity or inequity um, in the system, um, particularly around teaching us how to work and work hard um, and advocate for what we felt like we deserved. Uh, but yeah, it was, it was an interesting um, commerce in that day. I think he used the word sneaky in the interview. <laughs> and he could have used a much meaner word, where basically if, you, if this amount of carton harvested gets you this many groceries this week and the next week it changes, then that's not a very equitable arrangement. Not very equitable at all. He also talked about just sort of the strangeness of Southern society back then where even when he was older than certain young women, he would have to call them Miss. When the mother girl was eight or nine years old, you had, you had to call her Miss. Miss Junior, Mrs. Suzanne. They, they, they want to stop that bullshit to start here. That's why we can't learn, get along to white people. They teach their kids like they were taught. The farm on which he worked at the age of 15, 16, um, there were young girls there that were um, five, six, seven years old, and he had to refer to them uh, and give them a level of deference that, of course, he as a young man who was working um, did not receive on their behalf. But he also had to be very careful of not being too friendly 
with seven-year-old young white women um, because that too could be dangerous. So a, a very um, tenuous line to walk for him. It sounds like the racial hierarchy was very strict. Very strict, very strict. And very interesting in that um, even in his tutoring and training of his both children and grandchildren, while he didn't expect us to adhere to those things, he made sure that we understood the context and the world in which we lived compared to the world in which he was raised. So did he teach you to err on the side of caution or just be aware that, that fairness is a moving target sometimes? Fairness is a moving target. Um, he certainly, I think, had conversations that were different with my brother than he did with my, my sisters and I. Um, we moved with a little more grace uh, and comfort about the world. But the conversations he had with my brother were very clear. Um, these are the types of things that could have gotten him killed. And we're not so quite so sure that they won't get you killed. <laughs> so don't do that. So black men. Black men, being, absolutely. Being a young black man in America can still be complicated. Very complicated to navigate. Yeah. He told a story that I didn't quite understand, maybe because he remembered it more clearly than he could communicate, but it was about some guys that tried to steal watermelon. Do you remember this? I don't. But he had a friend, I think maybe it was a white friend, who helped him defend his watermelon patch against some thieves one day. I do remember this. Okay, can you, so yes. can you, can you yeah. tell us what this story, what this is all about? Well, it, just the notion of what's yours is yours. My grandfather was a man who believed in great equity and um, personal respect for individuality uh, and had raised these watermelons. Um, at the time, was friends with a neighboring sharecropper's son, um, some white gentlemen, kind of shriek at gentlemen, but some white right. men um, approached and decided to take what they wanted of my grandfather's harvest, in which he decided he wasn't willing to give that to them for free. Um, and so they started to beat him. Uh, and his white friend came to his, to his rescue, um, which ne didn't necessarily make him feel good that he had to be rescued. There was something about that in and of itself that I think that was challenging. Um, but helped him to, to procure his property <laughs> back um, in, a, in a forceful way, trying to be gingerly because that's how he would have handled it. Right. Um, but and he caused him great fear uh, of whether or not what the retribution for that could or would be. And ultimately nothing came of it. Um, but it was a, kind of a risky undertaking to say this is mine and you can't have it. It almost feels like if the friend who helped him defend the watermelons was black, it would have been a different outcome. Oh, yeah. I don't think that would have gone well at all. As I recall the story, the, the friend that helped defend him, their family owned quite a bit of land in that area. And so it wasn't just any white guy coming to his defense. It was the right one. Mm -hmm. um, otherwise, I don't believe that would have gone the same way. Yeah, so many, so many convolutions and complications. Yeah. It's very nuanced. Yeah, yeah. Well... I know that he spoke with pride when we talked about his pre-Army life on getting a job at a clothing store. first job I got was a men's clothing store. How old were you? I was 22. And regardless of what people might say, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. When I started work for you, I give you a day's work for a day's pay. I don't care what it was. Most of the time it was under $10 a week. You know, my grandfather was, was proud of, of having worked, um, and the work that he did was significant to him, uh, that he was involved in commerce, 
um, that he worked in a store where he got to dress up and not in a field uh, or doing manual labor to him was impressive. Um, my grandfather was known to be a, a sharp dressed man all of his life. Uh, one of the things that I love so much about him. Um, and so he was really impressed. He was proud that he had a, that opportunity. He, he built a great relationship with the owner of the store such that the owner would actually leave the store and my grandfather would be left uh, in re responsible for the, the day and with all the money and the, the merchandise. And, and that uh, affirmed him as a man uh, in, this, in a time and a space where it was really difficult to find experiences that would allow you to feel like you were in charge of something. And so he, he could almost be boastful um, about the relationship that he built with that young, that, um, the purveyor of that particular company. Um, when he left to go to the military, the guy told him that if you ever decide to come back to, to this community, we'd love to have you back. Uh, I'm going to keep, I, don't, I think it was a hat or something, I'm going to keep that until you come back because it'll be right where you left it. Um, and he was very proud of, of that. He never ended up going back to work in that space, but he certainly did go back when he was in town to shop. I remember him talking about that. I think another thing the job afforded him was a kind of expertise that he took pride in. You know, a lot of people come in there, they never know what they want. You know, they know what they want, but they could they explain it. Like a man said, I want a pair of shoes. I said, what, what's that? Toya, I said, what last? They know what I'm talking about. You got A, B, and C. Well, I want a shirt. What size? Uh, 34. You know, 34 and a half, or 15 and a half, something like that. I said, what, what length did you sleeve? I, I don't know. I had to measure his arms. <laughs> so I found out, I, mean, I wound up being a black twink. And a while, or old white stove, you know. You get these sort of wealthy white customers and say, I want this jacket. And he'd say, well, we have to measure your sleeves, yes. you know? Yes, And so he, he basically was the expert. He could make these people look good, but only if they listened to his instructions. If they least, right, if he was in charge. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So in a certain sense, one of the biggest disasters for him in the early 20s was being drafted for the Army because Pearl Harbor got bombed. Yes. Um, so do you recall any any sense that he communicated about his trepidation about military life early on? You know, he, not that he ever conveyed to us. Um, I think my grandfather was very, in, in a sense, actually excited about having an opportunity to serve. Um, not that there were tons of experiences or opportunities for African-American men in the South at the time. Uh, and so in as much as his military service um, had black spots, if you will, on it, um, I think he was pretty clear in that the trajectory of his life was for, certainly based on the opportunity that he had to serve and to travel um, and to see and be in other places and have different experiences. And so I don't know that he was afraid. Um, I think he, he went unknowing what was going to happen um, and what, that, what traveling in those circles would mean for him, his safety. I think, too, you think about a guy, 22, 23, never been out of Louisiana before. Yeah. yeah. And now suddenly he's in with all these guys from all over the U.S. He's being told what to do every day. Uh, he's not out of the South. He's in Virginia. So he right. has to wait in the rain for buses. And, you know, a few weeks ago, he was the expert in the clothing store, right? right? He was at the top of the food chain. Yeah, and yeah. now you're back at the bottom. Uh, I went to the Army in 1942. And, uh, I was, boy, I was mad. I had nice clothes, you know. 
I had $68 in the bank. I had three suits of clothes, three pair of pants, a couple pair of shoes. I didn't want to leave that red-looking girl, you know. <laughs> I had to leave all of that. Um, which was reminiscent of him, for him, of the work he'd done as a sharecropper's kid. Um, so not foreign, you don't have to relearn how to subjugate yourself. Um, that's one of those skills that he maintained and was able to keep for a really long time. Um, but certainly not where he wanted to be in life. I hadn't thought about it in those terms, that there's sort of this hierarchical subjugation in the military, but that's for a purpose, right? right. That it goes beyond white supremacy. It's, yes. it's for, for winning wars. Now, he told a story about one thing about being away from home for the first time is that he wrote letters home for the first yeah. time. Do you remember the stories he told about that? Um, just that he would write them, and he and his mother would exchange letters on a regular basis. Um, we had an opportunity a couple of, about a month ago, to go back to his family homestead and to the land in which his family uh, was raised and some of the places in Haynesville that we had visited with him uh, as, in my childhood. And so um, that he was able to remain connected to his family and even to some of his siblings via letter. Um, was, was really kind of neat. I never thought of my grandfather actually writing letters. You know, you think of, um, he didn't have a, a really strong formal education, and so the notion of him writing letters back and forth, um, not a romanticized thing for me, but certainly one of those things that gives me pause, and I wish I could find some of those. Yeah, you know, I remember when we talked to him, it was as if he had to, like, learn how to ride a bike or cook food or something. Writing a letter was so foreign to him. Yeah. But it was the only way he had of communicating with his, his loved ones and community back home. Yeah. Now, um, do you remember him talking about this turning point at which he decided that he was going to make peace with being away, with being in the Army? I couldn't do anything about it. For a whole year, I thought about it, you know. I said, what, what can you do but suffer, you know? And so that's what changed my mind, because I think I couldn't do anything about it anyway. I said, now, I'm going to be the best soldier in the Army. Did he talk about that very much, about when he just decided he was going to suck it up and make the best of his life? He did. He actually did. And, and that was context for many a lecture, you might imagine, over one's lifetime. Uh, of How you decide to respond to something is absolutely your choice. Um, and the fact that he wasn't excited about... Um, being drafted. He wasn't excited about leaving his family. He wasn't excited about being separated uh, and being put in a place uh, with folks he identified as foreigners. Um, but I can either make this, this, this can make me or it can break me. Uh, and I'm going to decide at this particular point, and I agree, um, standing in the rain for hours was one of those times where I think it, he actually had to decide who am I going to be in this moment. Um, because who I decide to be in this moment could determine whether I live or whether I die, whether I make it out of this experience based on the actual war piece or even the, the you know, back in the barrack piece. How I approach this will determine how I'm gonna live the rest of my life. Um, and so th that was a story that we got to hear frequently. I'd imagine, but it sounds like whatever he did worked because he got promoted a lot in those early years and um, I know just because of the bio I've read about him in newspapers, he did some barrage balloon training in Tennessee. Yeah. And I just looked that up today that actually barrage balloons were little air balloons that they, they put up in the air to take down low-flying Nazi flighters, yes. uh, fighter planes. And so he actually trained young men to, to 
do an act that eventually brought down yeah. Hitler's Hitler's air force. Yes. Right? Um, and then he also, when we talked to him, he really enjoyed. Um, well, one, he talked about how there was a point at which he realized that he was getting twenty-one dollars a month. Yep. Not bad, more than he was making at the clothing store. But white soldiers were getting fifty dollars. Fifty dollars a, a month. Yeah. Yeah. And that eventually changed. But a big turning point for him was. As if I recall correctly, was getting stationed in Fort Knox, mm-hmm. and now oftentimes when we think about talk, talking to old war veterans, we think, well, they'll talk about the war or about those barrage balloons and, and Hitler. But no, he was so proud of getting a car. Well, when I first got there, I didn't know anybody. From I left there, I know everybody. Cause I always kept a nice car, and uh, a lot of them, a lot of those people didn't have cars, you know. That, that car helped me out a lot in life. I was independent and uh, had my own transportation. I was independent. And I had something most people didn't have. You know what? I think it changed his life and it changed all of our lives um, because that made him yet again the man about town. Um, the man with the experience, the man with the know-how and the resources to be a, a, a part of the community where otherwise he wasn't, he wouldn't have been at the top. Uh, so because he had a car, he was able to provide transportation to other people. Um, he was able to provide access to things that folks might need or other resources. Um, so he was able actually to make money because while he would take you across town, he would charge you mm-hmm. <laughs> to go across town. Um, so he became a little entrepreneurial. He was Uber before we had Uber. Yeah, and it's such a funny solution to his problems because one, this big turning point for him as a soldier was not being able to get on a bus. Yeah. And Fort Knox is still in the South. It's still in the South. But if the black man owns the car and he, he if he charges a modest amount to get across town, I'd yep. imagine if I was a black GI, I would drive in John Monk's car rather than... Then try to get on the bus too. wait for the bus. Yeah. I think another thing too is that not just for him, but maybe for people around him, here's a guy who could have gone on leave and invested that military pay into five beers, but he saved his money and eventually bought a car. Oh, my grandfather was a huge saver. Um, I think for every $1 he made, he saved at least a half of it um, because he was intentional. Um, I think a lot of it, to your point, goes back to the day in the rain. I'm gonna make this work for me and not just what's gonna do for me today, but what is it gonna do for me when I'm done at this stage? How do I leverage this experience in such a way where I'm better off when this experience, when I transition to whatever's next? Yeah, and, and, and so f- forward thinking was he that I'm sitting interviewing part of that plan, yeah, right? Yeah, absolutely. That, that you are a manifestation of absolutely. this plan that may have formed when he was very frustrated and probably humiliated yeah. standing there in the rain after all those years. Now, as his military career went on and he was making money, Driving a car around. Driving a car. He, he re-enlisted because I think he said something like it was, you got a $300 bonus or something. Yep. Um, and the military was working for him. And uh, in during the Korean War, he was a quartermaster. Mm-hmm. Um, did he drive behind enemy lines? Was there something? Did I see that in his bio? Or? You know, I think he did a little time behind enemy lines, but not significantly. Okay. Most of his work was in training other people to do it successfully. Well, one thing that happened, you talk about how your, your grandfather could get emotional yeah. when he would recall things. And one moment when he got emotional speaking to us a couple of years ago was when, was sort of counterintuitive. And, uh, old Truman, his president, 
Roosevelt died and he took over. He said, we ain't gonna have integration, we ain't gonna have it now. So this started my outfit. They sent me to a whole white unit. Boy, 17, 18 years old, you know. That was, that was the day of my life. When they sent me down. <laughs> when they sent me down to all this white unit. Basically, Truman said, well, why, why do we have a segregated army? And Patton said, I don't care. You know, if you can fight, I don't care what color right. you are. So they integrated the army. And because John Monk had done a great job as a uh, non-commissioned officer, mm -hmm. they made him a drill sergeant. But one day they, he realized he was going to be a drill sergeant of an all-white unit. An all-white unit. And I think his relationship with white people had been so tied up with humiliations, mm -hmm. that at age 102, he became very emotional. I think he felt that awkwardness and fear that he felt as a young man that he realized he had to wake up. And after years of being in a part of the country where you literally had to call a five-year-old ma'am, yeah. that he had to yell at, at white 17 and 18-year-olds. and Which um, could have gotten him killed outside of that particular context. So you can see how we all develop an emotional relationship to the rules in our lives. Yeah. And suddenly this was, you don't think about it in retrospect, you think right on, you know, John Monk gets to order some white kids around. Yeah. Well, emotionally that was tough for him. Yeah. So did he talk to you about that transition? You know, often, um, not that it, it, it's parallel, but certainly being an African-American woman working in a higher ed institution where most of the folks are white and male and older than me, um, there was one place I could go and just kind of puke and complain about all of that. And the context and the perspective was real because he would say, you know what, it could be worse. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it could be worse. Um, so think about this and, and how you might have approached this particular situation, which would then make me say, okay, well, it's not so bad after all. I'm living in the, 19, in the 21st century, of course. And so um, suck it up, buttercup, get in there and get her done. Um, because that's what he had to do. He had to um, kind of get his wits about him and rewrite a script that had been really um, centrally core to, to who he had been and what was necessary to be successful. Um, he'd seen folks, even in his own family, um, decide to yell at a white person or to respond to indignities in a way that was life-threatening for them. Um, so to get himself mentally prepared to, to do so. Um, he, he would tell a story often about the first time um, he, well, it wasn't the first time, but probably the time he got to the point where he decided he, wasn't, he was no longer gonna suffer the indignation of the folks who were underneath him not responding to his um, wishes or doing what he told them to do. Um, and then he threw a guy down the stairs and I thought, wow, I can't imagine my grandfather who never spanked me, never really yelled at me, throwing a man down the stairs. And he was like, you know what? You throw a man down the stairs and it changes their lives. Changes <laughs> their life too. Thought, okay, well, that's one way to do it. I think he told us once about how he told there were some young white recruits there and he was probably as scared as them when he said stand up and when they didn't, he kicked a chair out from underneath the kid. I blow the whistle, I body moved. I said, they say, hey, don't fall out, son. I hit my little clipboard and all that. They won't fall out. I said, what'd you say? They won't fall out. That's what I thought you said. 
Follow me. I went to, one guy was sitting in the chair like that the first me and I grabbed him by the leg. I just Had the rifle between the legs. I went to the second one and I pulled up there. I'm like, get out of here. Get out of here. But the third one, the damn you run over me. I didn't have no more trouble. And he said that he eventually sort of learned, it sort of humanized white people to him, that experience. He eventually came to have affection for his young recruits, you know. Yes. Um, that he saw them as scared young people too, and that they could take, I forget exactly what he said, maybe they could take his problems to him or something. Do you, do you remember? Yeah, he ultimately built re relationship and rapport. Um, such that they could come to him and really talk about how they were engaging in, in their service and, and what their fears and concerns were. And he could identify with those. Um, and in a unique way to, again, give some perspective to even the, the young guys that were in there, under his, his leadership. And so it sounds like that was sort of the second turning point in his military career is just the, the integrated military. And after that, I don't know that if it got easier, but I know he was stationed in France. Yes. Uh, he was stationed in Fort Riley. He trained a couple generations of yeah. young soldiers. Um, and he actually spoke sort of emotionally knowing that some of his young soldiers during the Vietnam War didn't come back. He did. He did. He took their lives very seriously. Um, as I would imagine everyone uh, who's in that type of line of work does. You, you're preparing your folks to be successful in whatever their engagement is. Uh, and when you lose one, um, he felt like he'd lost um, while he wasn't on the front line, they were certainly his proxy, and they, he, he intended to be uh, careful for them and of them uh, in their preparation. And so it hurt his heart. Um, he could tell me names of, of soldiers that he'd lost, um, and he felt like he had lost them, not that they were lost, but that he lost them. That's interesting, yeah. I, I bet the military wishes they had more John Monks in I that sense. I think we all do. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Good point. Now, he left the military at a certain point, and he came to Kansas. Do you know, A, why he left the military, and two, why he came to Kansas? I think he left. He was just discharged. Um, he had taken a wife at that point, my grandma, Grace, uh, and they had a daughter, my mom, Shirley, and they were ready to not be in military life. Um, he had socked up enough money where he could build a house. Um, his older brother had literally escaped Louisiana. Uh, in a, not a barroom brawl, but a brawl with a white man and had been living in Wichita for a while. And so he came here um, because that's where his mother told him to go. Go check on your brother and the two of you stay there. Hmm. It, it's interesting how, I guess Wichita has a very specific racial history too. You yes. Know, that it, it was never perfect, but when you think about things like the, the sitting, lunch counter sit-ins. Right. We had it here before they had it in North before Carolina. It, yep, we were first. And I've studied that a little bit, and I think it's because just the backlash was not, not going to be as strong in Wichita as in Greensboro, that you had a few high school tough guys who mouthed off, but other than that, it was successful. Right. Whereas in Greensboro and parts of the South, it was tougher. So I'm not going to brag on Wichita's racial history too much, but um, it was sort of a respite. Maybe yes. it was a little bit easier for him than going back to Louisiana. Oh, absolutely. Kansas wasn't, of course, a free state. Uh, and so um, if you were going to go anywhere, this is as far as you could go and be in a free state or as close as you could go and still be in a free state. Yeah. And again, not to go on too many asides, but I've talked to, to 
football coaches from a previous era whose mm. black players could not play in games against Oklahoma Baptist, for right. example. Exactly. You cross that the Oklahoma border and suddenly you're in a culturally different place. Yep. Oklahoma, Missouri, Kansas was good. Yeah, Kansas was a was not just a free state, but sort of suffered back in the day for being a free state. Yes. So, um, so what job did he find in Kansas? Oh, I think his first job was he, or the job he talked about the most with us is that he was a doorman at uh, Park Lane Towers. Um, proud of that role because again, he got to wear a uniform uh, and uniforms after so many years serving in military service were very comfortable for him. Uh, he looked really good in a uniform, if I do say so myself. Um, and he was really proud. At the time, I think it was one of the, the nicest, newest kind of loft-like buildings, if you will, for that day and time. Uh, and to be the doorman, he had access, uh, again, became the man with the no, and so was, was in a position to be helpful and resourceful, um, but also had some control over things and felt really good about that. I think he. I think to quote him, he said he didn't have to lift anything heavier than a phone. Yes, that he could have been put to work as a porter or a janitor, but he was. He basically ran Park Lane Towers. He ran Park. Yep. They thought I was going to be something like the hotel boy, you know, carrying those luggage, like uh, running errands. The heavy thing I ever picked up was a telephone. Nobody could come in that building without I getting permission. And do you remember how he ended up leaving Park Lane Towers? He ended up, uh, he met my then uh, grandmother after my grandma Grace died, Grandma Wilma, uh, and helped her to run. He'd been volunteering and helping support her as she was running a dry cleaners, uh, Terry's Dry Cleaners over on 17th Street. Uh, and he ultimately started working with and for her in that uh, private business. And there's two twists here about her. One is her race, yes. and two is, is her romantic life moving forward. So what do you recall, what happened in that situation? Well, race, Grandma Wilma was white. Um, and while we knew that as kids, I don't know that that was, we, it only became a big deal when other people pointed out to us that our Grandma was white. We knew she was white. Um, and at one point she was married. Don't know what happened to her husband. I went in there one day and... After I got out of the army, I had my clothes. And she was all upset, she was crying. Because she was working by herself. Her husband told her, said, get the hell out of here. I said, why? I, said, I can't think they black some bitch. Why? So we just got $12,000 in debt. And you, you're talking like that? So I can't stand them. So, well, make your mind up, son. If you, if you don't go, I'm going to leave you. You know, he left that woman down there about three weeks later. She went falling. So we got a good credit with her. And said, so I'm not going to leave. But not everybody in her family were all that excited that she was bringing home. It's kind of like, you know, who's coming home for dinner or what's the movie? Right. Yeah. yeah. Is it, what is it? Um, I just watched it not long ago. Sidney Poitier. Yeah. Who's coming? Yeah. Who's, who's coming, coming to dinner? To dinner? Yeah. Um, and so really interesting to kind of watch their love story or to, to focus or think about how they, their, their love story came to be. As I recall from, from talking to your grandfather, she and her husband had a dry cleaner yes. in a neighborhood that suddenly became the black part of town. The black part of town. And the husband is like, I'm not going to have anything to do with these black people. And she just shrugged and said, okay. And so she took on the debt. Yep. 
then she met your grandfather, and then they got married. And then and they, they got married. And they worked off the debt. They worked off the debt. And what did they buy when they earned a little bit of extra money? Tons of stuff. Okay. Uh, they bought a farm. That's what I was thinking. Out yeah. in, uh, not far from Severy, Kansas, mm -hmm. uh, where we would go up as kids. Now, we call, we just called it the farm. I don't know, but in, it, it's you have to be careful in Kansas because most people who have farms grow crops and wheat and harvest and those types of things. Well, they didn't have... Um, they, they certainly gardened, and so we had huge gardens full of green vegetables and, and well, not all of them green, but vegetables. Um, but a chicken coop, although there were no chickens and there was a pasture and there were no cows, but about 40 acres uh, of land out in the middle of Kansas where we would go as kids and, and play and, you know, catch crawdads and do things that most little black kids don't do. Uh, in the middle of Kansas. Were you usually the only black kid besides your siblings out in the country? Oh yeah, oh yeah. It yeah. was us and Farmer Bill's kids and Nancy down around the creek on the other side of the river. Um, but we were the only black kids out there. Was there ever any weirdness? Did the other kids recognize you? Or were they just were they just kids? And yeah, just we were just kids. We were just kids. It was such a community. I literally remember the day my grandpa told me I had to start wearing a shirt. Uh, <laughs> because we were just that country uh, where we would run when the, the roosters crowed. We'd get up and go play and set trout lines and, you know, do what people in the country do. Uh, and the day he told me I had to start wearing a shirt was devastating to me. <laughs> so if we didn't know you needed to wear clothes, we certainly didn't really have race as uh, a construct. Well, this makes me think of a couple of things. One is that um, have you, you've heard of the Exodusters yes. in the 1870s? Yeah. Um, and for my listeners who don't know, that, that was basically Kansas gave land to black settlers yep. in the 1870s. And it wasn't the best land. Um, and a lot of the communities died away. But one community that survived was Nicodemus, Nicodemus Kansas, Kansas yes. which to this day is um, a historical site. Yes. And that was like a factory for middle class black people. Mm -hmm. If odds are, if somebody's family had been through Nicodemus and you looked at the middle class black business community in Wichita or Denver, there could have been a, a, a Nicodemus connection yeah. there. So I think it's interesting that you had, that John Monk gave you country time. He gave me country time. Yeah. Yeah. And then another interesting thing is that he grew up a country guy. Right. But, but, but a Louisiana country guy. So he, it, there must have been pride in him taking his little black grandchildren. Oh, yeah. And the black grandchildren were, were not only shirtless, but full equals with the little black <laughs> right. white kids running right. around in, on, on the farm. Yeah. Well, and it was our land. So they were... The white kids were guests mm. on our land. Um, now, you know, I can recalling just yesterday, at very early ages, we still had a, an outhouse. So, um, not that it was, it was, there was no running water when we bought the place, we, when he bought the place, um, but he and grandma got running water and we had showers on the inside. And, and so our place was pretty pristine compared to some of the, the neighboring uh, farms, and that wasn't that long ago. I'm I'm not even 50 yet, so it, it was within our lifetimes that we were in outhouses. Uh, and our house, when we got running water, was kind of we were, as he would say, stepping in high cotton. <laughs> well, it's it's funny that um, there's a story in my family that when my father, who's a Wichita guy, yeah, went to visit my mom after they got engaged, he went to visit my mom's family. She grew up on a farm, uh -huh. and he was wandering around the house. And they, people said, George, what are you looking for? And he said, the bathroom. And they yeah. said, go outside, outside. buddy. It's yeah. an outhouse. So that was in the 1960s. And so it's funny how 
we're part of like your father your grandfather was a sharecropper and yeah. that generation may be mostly gone now yep but we're part of a generation that has outhouses as a part of our history, right, right? Right, that we could even refer to an outhouse seems odd. And, and we just saw your sons and, and your son and your nephews and, yeah. and uh, who knows what stories they're going to yeah. remember of us, right? Yeah, not outhouses, but... <laughs> right, right. Well, as a North High graduate, one thing, we just had our 30th uh, reunion this year. Yeah. I think I was in Kazakhstan or something. I would say, you, yeah, you were floating around the globe somewhere. But oftentimes, um, you know, you have stars of a senior class and it's either a football team. You know, we had Barry Sanders a few yeah, years before did. us or, um, you know, maybe a, a really talented musician. And we actually had talented musicians um, mm -hmm. in adjacent classes. But in a way, you were sort of the star of the class of 1989 oh, wow. because you got the Gore Scholar. You got a full scholarship. I did. We were very proud of you, Kay. Yeah. yeah. Um, and... John Monk played a role in he you did. being this person who got this mind-blowingly yeah. generous uh, scholarship to Wichita State that made the rest of us in the class excitement. So how did John Monk give you a big assist on being you know, the academic star of the class of 89? You know, he is the, the central piece of a, a narrative in our entire family. I was invited to, to participate, uh, as were lots of other kids. Uh, in this competition on, on the Wichita State University campus. Hundreds of candidates. Hundreds. Uh, I want to say there was like 335 people there or something like that. Um, my family didn't have a car. <laughs> and so the morning that it was time, I had decided not to go because I didn't know how I was going to get there, um, which seems ridiculous because it's less than five miles away, right down 21st Street, right? I mean, probably not worth walking, but not a, a huge distance to climb or to, to overcome, but it seemed insurmountable to me. I couldn't figure out how I was gonna get there. And um, my high school counselor, Jack Greider, called my grandfather, who just happened to be listed on my pupil, um, in my emergency contact, when I told Mr. Greider I wasn't gonna go and I told him why I wasn't gonna go. He said, well, does anybody have a car? I said, well, yeah, my granddaddy does, but he goes to the farm on Saturdays and so he won't be here. Um, and I didn't dare, you know, encroach upon his time out in the country. And so I never thought to even call him and ask him. Mr. Greider called my grandpa and told him that I needed a ride to go to this competition. And so my grandpa came up uh, on his sky blue Cadillac at 7.30 in the morning on Saturday and picked me up and dropped me off. So if it had not been for him uh, and Mr. Greider's inter inter uh, intervention there, I probably wouldn't have gone. Yeah, it's interesting. I didn't know the Jack Ryder. I remember Mr. Yeah, Ryder. Yeah. But that was part of the community too. That was very wise of him. Yeah. Yeah. Um, to, to to reach out uh, on your behalf, and there's a funny story. You got the Gore Scholarship. It was a big deal. We were all very happy. Yeah. And it sort of set you on the path to where you are now because you're an administrator, which I State. am. Yeah. But what happened when you went to a car dealership with John <laughs> Monk after having won the Gore Scholarship, and when they asked? About yeah, your financial situation. Yeah. So I win this scholarship, which affords more money than anybody in our family, or at least that I knew of, had ever made. Um, I'd get money every month as a, as a check to live on in addition to, you know, tuition and fees. And so my grandpa thought, what is the first thing that you do when you, when you uh, get on your feet? You get a car, right? Because that was his experience. You get a car. So I wanted a car and of course he was very supportive of that. And so we go off down to the, the Honda dealership and I pick the one out that I want. And it's within the budget that he has said, you know, you can afford. And the guy says, well, you need a cosigner. 
And I said, well, I don't have a co-signer. He was like, well, your mom co-signed. Well, my mom wasn't in a position to be able to do that. She herself did not have a car at the time. So the guy asked my grandpa if he would co-sign. And he said, well, of course I will, but she doesn't need a co-signer. And out of his wallet, he pulls an article from the Wichita Eagle showing that I'd won this scholarship and convinced the guy that because I had a scholarship that was going to pay me a living wage for four years, which was less than what it would take to pay off the car, that I didn't need a co-signer. And sure enough, I walked out of there with a brand new car and no co-signer. Very nice. Yeah. And here you are after after all these years. I think, again, one great thing is that in a way that was connected to that moment in 1942 when the bus wouldn't pick him up. Yeah, you know, yeah. That, that somehow the man that John Monk decided to be when he could have been bitter or mm-hmm. angry or self-pitying, right. that he made a decision that improved your life. Absolutely, absolutely. And, and um, he was without child at the time, but I can't allow myself to believe that I wasn't a part of that decision-making process for him. Um, that he was very intentional in knowing that the decision I make today impacts me today and anything that moves forward, um, which would include me. Again, I think we live in this sort of, and I don't want to be the old guy complaining about how, <laughs> how things are these days, but this instant gratification society, but then also sort of emotional instant gratification. We complain about things on social media, right. and then we complain that, we're not getting consoled enough. Well, this guy played a long game. Yeah. <laughs> um, 1942 to 1989. I'm not a math <laughs> major, but but it's you know by the time this comes out, it'll be 2020, and yeah. and um, you're still reaping the benefits of his decision. Still reaping the benefits, as will his his generations, right? Um, interestingly enough, when when you talk about for my grandfather the importance of a car, right? Um, and transportation linking back to the, the, that pivotal moment for him. All of his grandchildren who are of the age to go to college also have cars. <laughs> and he's made a down payment on every one of those cars. And doesn't your brother work for, run, like run a car dealership? He does. He runs uh, several dealerships here for the Mike Stevens family. And so cars are a thing for us. Uh, as a part of not just having the car, but the ability to transport yourself, to transport others, to provide resources for you and for those that you care about, um, the autonomy that one receives when you have your own way of, of transportation um, was really important to him and not something, something that we took for granted uh, until putting all those things in context. I think that's a sort of a middle-class privilege thing yes. that we are luxurious enough to be able to just assume that Everybody has a car, right? And then we're also luxurious enough to assume that we're not making our decisions on a 50-year time horizon, you know, that we're, we're thinking about one week or one day. And so you are an administrator at Wichita State. Uh, remind me exactly what your job title is. Uh, title, Assistant Vice President for Academic Affairs. Okay. Um, but you're also a mom. I am a mom. And, and so as an assistant vice president at, at a university and a very proud mom, if yes. Facebook uh, indicates correctly, how does John Monk inform you know, your own decisions? Oh my gosh, um, in, in almost every way, because it's perspective. Um, one of the things that he would tell us often is that it's chess, not checkers. Hmm. Chess, not checkers. Hmm. Uh, and so again, th- the long game, right? That you have to make moves um, that will not just impact your today, but the lives of folks down the road. Um, part of the responsibility I have at Wichita State is strategic planning. 
and so I'm always invested in what is the long game. Um, I have a, a huge opportunity to impact what our institution is doing for students, particularly students that were like me, first generation, low income. Um, how do we create opportunities for students so that they can have cars, hmm. metaphorically and you know, realistically? Or um, just how are we transporting them from their now to their future? Um, and that's an important part of the work that it's never without a, it's a, not a day goes by that I don't reflect on something that my grandfather said. Now, this might apply to something, some job you had before, but weren't you working in a program that you, you dealt with kids who came from a poorer background, but some of them were rural and white. Yes, lots yeah. of them are rural and white. And I think that's, that's a good thing to acknowledge. You know, there's not a, a racial essentialism Correct. to this. Um, you know, not just to think about who has needs, but but sometimes uh, it, it's too easy to to um, to assume that oh well, you're the administrator who's going to help the black people at Wichita right. State when in fact you're here to give opportunities to all kinds of kids who absolutely. need them. Absolutely, absolutely, and that's one of the things we learned really early on in the program that I worked with. Thank you for for reminding me of that. Um, my, the the little white kids that I worked with were just certainly as important to me. Um, as any little brown kid, but suffered from the same um, isolation, from the same lack of opportunity, from the same um, inability to see a vision outside of what was sitting right before them. Um, and my grandfather was, was kind of the, the, the case statement for that. Um, in as much as race played a huge part of his life, he was legitimately not a person bound by racial definitions, um, as evidenced by the woman that he spent the later part of his life uh, married to and loving, um, the children that he raised, his, her family, um, all very rural communities, um, loved him and cared for him and visited with him on a monthly basis uh, and would refer to them, him as their Uncle Johnny, just like he was my grandpa. And so um, you don't see that a lot, but there are a lot of white people that took care of my grandpa at the end of his, his uh, life. Um, and he took great pride in that. I think it's good to acknowledge this complexity and diversity. You know, like I didn't know that Jack Greider, our white counselor, sort yeah. of put you in touch with John Monk to give you that ride for that very important scholarship. But it occurs to me that some of the kids you worked with were rural kids who were Asian, like Western yes. Kansas Cambodian yes. kids who yes. sort of needed a perspective as well. So I think it's, it's, it's important not to be essentialist when we think about who might need help, who defined, who's defined by a city person or a country yeah. person. Yeah. In many cases, for me, it's impoverished people or people who want something different than what they've got. Um, and that doesn't always have to be money. And sometimes it's just access to education or resources. Um, so yeah, it's, it's not about your, your skin color per se. I, uh, I remember talking to your grandfather, and I remember the last thing he said. Do you remember the last thing he said? I don't. He was talking about how I could die today, and I would be happy with my life. And what I didn't recognize at the time is that 76 days later, three months later, yeah, yeah. he had passed away. And it felt like, and here we are still talking to, about yeah. it, right? Yeah. Right? So in a way, there's almost something aspirational from my, from my listeners, too, that... I think it's easy to go online and, and just be depressed by the world mm -hmm. because we're all playing a short game. Yep. And that the world didn't really give John Monk a lot of favors, right? Yes, yes. But he lived his life in such yeah. a way 
it's still paying off. Yeah. That it's still, 70 years later, yeah. it's still paying off. Good guy. My grandfather died at home in the evening in his chair. He just went to sleep. So when he told you he was ready, he really was ready. He was a man who had said all he needed to say to anyone he needed to say it to. Um, and he lived his life uh, clearly with the expectation and in giving. I did my part and, I, and everything completed. I could die tonight and be happy. I had a bad life and a good life. In the end, I had a good life. This has been Deviate with Rolf Potts. More about everything that was just mentioned can be found in the show notes at rolfpotts.com slash deviate. And as always, you can contact me with insights or questions at deviate at rolfpotts.com. This episode was produced by Justin Glow. Cedar Van Tassel does the theme music. Jan Futterman does the show notes. Thanks for listening, and I hope you tune in for future episodes of Deviate with Rolf Potts.